this morning. We are doing something that we've never done on a Sunday, and it's called Conversation Sunday. So we've been in this series over the past few months where we've just been saying, hey, uh, the series has been called Relationship or Religion, and we've been really pushing back on legalism and religion and really getting to a place with our hearts and our minds of saying, hey, God, like, how do I interpret the Bible? And within that series, I know that sometimes it's just a lot of information. So we've really opened the doors up for conversation and really for questions to be asked. So I've been asking you guys for tons and tons of questions. So I've been getting those. So we're going to go through some of those questions that you guys have asked in this series and address those. But I also want to leave room for kind of some spontaneous questions near the end. So this is the first time we've ever done this. So uh, we're figuring it out, and we're going to just kind of roll with it this morning. But um, if you do this morning, like a question kind of comes up. If you're on Facebook Live, you're like, hey, I have a question I'd like to contribute. The way that we're going to encourage you to do that, um, there's a phone number. This is actually Shane Burdick, who led worship. This is his phone number, personally. No, I'm just kidding. Um, anyway, uh, no, this is like a, one of those like random numbers that expires in 30 days. You know what I mean? So it's not like you're going to be able to stalk somebody with this number. So this is an anonymous number that really, it goes to an iPod Touch that Callie has that basically you can text any question. She has access to that. And hopefully the last 15 minutes or so during this time, we'll be able to address some of those questions. And I know there was a lot of questions, so we might not be able to get to all of them. But I really do want to kind of um, make sure that you guys know that this is open and accessible to ask any questions during this time. So how cool is that? I mean, technically, with Facebook Live, we could be having questions come from anywhere that we could address and have conversation this morning. So uh, pretty cool. Anyway, so so this morning, uh, now that we kind of know how, how it's going to work, um, I'm just going to kind of go through uh, different questions. But I really, a lot of what we're going to be doing this morning is resourcing you. Um, resourcing some of our questions. And I just want to reiterate a book that, that, that I really encourage us for us, if you want to take a deeper dive kind of on this uh, topic of legalism and, and is the church still relevant and what does that look like in kind of a postmodern day in 2018, about to be 2019, there's a book in our library called Irresistible for all you Facebook online people that you can grab it on Amazon, right? Um, this is a great resource. I would highly recommend it. I said this before and I'll say it again. If there's a book you're reading, drop it and pick up this one because this one just really translates in such a practical way of how we relate to this thing called Christianity in the day and age that we live in and really wrestles and addresses a lot of the topics that we dealt with in this series, talking about is this, re- is this a relationship or is this kind of a religion, right? So pick this up, Irresistible by Andy Stanley. Can't recommend it enough. But, but here we go this morning. We, we have different topics that I kind of categorized uh, the questions. I didn't count exactly the number of questions that we had. I'd say it was probably in like the 30 to 40 question range, and I tried to lump kind of according to category. So this morning, here's kind of the categories of the questions that people asked. Um, There's a lot of questions kind of generally about the Bible itself, right? Um, Questions about biblical culture, questions about Christian ethics, uh, questions about Christian praxis, which is basically how we practice our faith, right? How does that play out practically in our everyday lives? Um, questions about the character of God, great, and uh, questions about the church, which really in the glow, kind of the grand scheme of this series, all of these have been big topics that we've kind of addressed and kind of uh, went through, right? So here we are. Uh, these are kind of the big questions, you know, but um, I just want to get down to some kind of just really just basic questions that I think would help us, that people ask, that would kind of help kind of open the door to this conversation uh, to begin with. So here we go. Um, first question is this. Uh, somebody asked, what does the Bible mean when it says God's word is alive and full of power? And I think th- that's, that's a great question because w- the assumption in this whole conversation Sunday is we're trying to be the best interpreters of the Bible. 
you know, we see different ways that God has revealed himself throughout human history, but the primary way that God has chosen to reveal himself at this point in history is through this thing called the Bible. And that's the assumption that we're bringing to the table this morning. So if you're a person, maybe you're like, I don't even know if the Bible's legit. Um, I don't even know, like, what this thing's all about. I don't even know if, like, this guy who claims to be, like, resurrected is true. Those are different issues. The assumption that we're kind of bringing this morning is that, and what we dealt with in this series, is we're just trying to be the best interpreters of the Bible. Because many times, different people get different interpretations, and they're all reading the same Bible. So we want to be good practitioners when it comes to our Bible reading skills and interpretation of, hey, our day and age, our Western day and age looks completely different than the day and age that many biblical writers were writing and how the process of that Bible kind of came about. So what does it mean that God's word is alive and full of power? It means that God's word is different. I remember a season of my life where I, I was like, man, I was, I was in Bible college. I was learning a ton of different things about the Bible. And typically one of the things that I love to do is do uh, my daily devotions. So read a portion of the Bible and then journal on it. And I remember I was like, man, I just feel like I'm so confused about the Bible. I'm learning about the Bible that I literally just stopped doing it. And stopped reading my Bible. And I remember during that season, it was like, that's where this, this kind of came alive for me. When the Bible claims to be the word of God, claims to be full of power, I noticed a practical difference in my life. When I stopped really starting my day or using this time during my day to allow this relationship with Jesus filter through who I am as a human being. Filter through and how I connect and have a relationship with God. So we come with the core conviction as we talk about the Bible that the Bible is the word of God. That is full of power. That it makes a difference in our lives. And literally we as human beings get to decide how we steward this powerful thing called the word of God. Amen? Okay, next question, kind of another just general question about the Bible that's helpful in the beginning. And I kind of alluded to this already. Why are some books in the Bible while others are not? For example, Philemon, why is that book included in, a, in the Bible? What is of such great importance concerning books like that? And it's helpful to know, if, if you didn't know or you haven't looked kind of into church history, the books that are included in our modern-day Bible today um, is included because there was this process called canonization that happened for a lot of our early church fathers, and even previous to that, through the Jewish faith. So this process is a big, it's a deep, deep conversation, and I think we can once again get into the weeds this morning on like one topic, but I really want to kind of resource us, and, and for us, we, um, how many of you guys know we have a YouTube channel? Um, all of our messages have been posted online. So there's sometimes that we're going to come across some of these topics where it's like, hey, um, we've already talked a little bit about that um, because it takes and requires a deeper dive. If you're really interested in this process of the canon, how the Bible came about, once again, this is a massive topic. I would encourage you um, on the next slide on our YouTube channel. We had a message, I think this was our Easter message yeah, this last year, a message titled Trusting the Church, where we address some of these concerns. Like, how do we actually trust that the, who, who we say what's in the Bible is actually legit? What is the process? What did that look like? Because this is a lot of our concerns in a postmodern day and age, in an information kind of post-truth age. More people make decisions based on their emotions than actual literal of admitting that there has to be absolute truth. So we wrestle with some of these issues. So I would encourage you, if you got questions about the canon, how the Bible came about, I would encourage you to get on our YouTube channel, check this message out. We take a deep dive on that, address some of the concerns and the issues. But most of all, uh, the Bible is a compilation of people being carried along by God's spirit, right, writing down words, I love Philemon as that example. Philemon is literally an example of a, a guy, the Apostle Paul, who is led by God to pen, literally pen 
churches, address churches via letter about concerns and things that were happening in other churches as a form of communication. They're sending letters. And we believe the core conviction is that these people were literally carried along by the Spirit of God to pen these actual words of God. And these actually became criteria for, okay, how do we know what's God's word? How do we not? So, once again, we'll take, you could take a deeper dive on our YouTube channel, Trusting the Church. I would encourage you, check that message out. And then lastly, kind of as these, these, these beginning questions, as the next one, how do we find out what culture is like for the specific scripture we look up? Great question, because you have to address the cultural gap. You have to. Many times, we bring our, our own assumptions. If you grew up in a family in the United States, typically your family structure looked a lot different than the family of the ancient days of old. Right? So we're going to address some of those cultural questions, but I would say as a resource, we have to. If you're a serious, thoughtful Christian who thinks about the Bible, thinks deeper about the Bible, you have to deal with the cultural gap. You have to deal with this issue of culture. So there is a great resource. This is my favorite Bible to date um, that just released within the past couple years. It's called the Cultural Background Study Bible. This is a great resource. If I could recommend any to kind of pertain to this question, which is an awesome question. Kudos to whoever asked it and is really engaging kind of in the scriptures and wondering about this. This is a great resource. We have this in the library. If we don't have enough copies, there's a sign-up list there that will get you a copy so you can get one soon. But this Bible is literally like, it's a combination of kind of like a lot of the Bible college kind of resources wrapped into a Bible right there. So you have some great footnotes and, and research and people who have dedicated their whole life to the scholarship of studying the Bible and the culture to really kind of help illuminate some of the context and understanding why did that person say that? Why does this story happen like it happens, right? So I would highly encourage this Cultural Background Study Bible. This is an amazing uh, piece of history and research and for 2018 a massive blessing for us as the modern body of Christ. So I would encourage you, if you don't have a study Bible or you're interested and more of the cultural background, um, I can't highly recommend this Bible, study Bible enough. It is amazing. So check that out. And uh, we have, once again, sign-ups if we don't have enough in the library. So, okay, let's dive into uh, these topics that, 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 I, that we were talking about at the beginning. Kind of I separated the questions into the big topics. And rather than like going from one topic and working through it, I decided these first questions, I took one question that I thought was really good and kind of pertinent and opened the door in some further conversation from each topic. And if we get through those, depending on what time it is, I'm keeping an eye on the clock, um, we can go through more of those topics and just kind of work our way through it. But I thought at least hopefully we can get through one good question um, per topic or category. Does that make sense? And then I obviously want to leave room for um, any other questions at the end. Callie, have we got any questions yet on the text message? Come on, people. Come on. Let's ask these questions. So, but that, the good thing is, if nobody wants to ask questions this morning live, um, I can just keep going through my list because I think we'll have enough to fill our time this morning because we're going to get into some great conversation and topics about these types of things. So, okay, here we go. First question. Uh, dealing with biblical culture, a great, 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 great question that somebody asked is, is this. They asked, in biblical lineage, why are men mentioned and rarely any women? When it lists children, it seems to be exclusively male. Why doesn't the Bible mention the daughters of Adam and Eve? Great question. Really, really good question. And, and if, once again, through our Western lens of people, it's like, man, like, why is it the Bible seem kind of silent on the lineage of women or women aren't mentioned? And on, on the next slide, just to kind of start unpacking some of these ideas, we have to come to terms of the voice of what the voice is in terms of when we're reading the scripture. 
Because many times the Bible takes a passive voice of being descriptive, describing what's happening, describing the assumption within the culture during that, that time versus what we would call prescriptive of something that God is encouraging through his goodness, through his perfect justice, right? And many times we have to separate those two things. So, for example, um, when the Bible wrestles with gender and identity roles, so you can make an assumption if you were saying that the Bible's prescriptive that, okay, well, the Bible doesn't mention women, so women obviously don't have a, the, a shoe in this game uh, of this thing called church, right? Because obviously, I mean, God doesn't prioritize that. That's a prescriptive assumption about really what's being described out of a specific culture. We have to deal with that. Slavery being mentioned in the Bible. Does that mean God affirms slavery because it's mentioned? What about other horrible things in the Bible? What about the polygamy that's in the Bible? What about the rape? What about the incest? Because if we use the same logic and we apply the same logic to each and every one of those situations, saying it's prescriptive, then we're saying, okay, God affirms all those things. But rather, many times, there is a descriptive voice. There's a descriptive voice that's describing the culture during that time without affirming, once again, that God thinks about those things or affirms those very things that are being described throughout human history in the Bible as we read it, as we, as we push through it. Okay, so here's what we need to understand Back to the question, right? It's like, uh, this always happens in meetings, right? Somebody asks me a question, and I always go on rabbit trails for like 20 minutes. So have patience with the pastor. You know what I mean? I'm always asking the question, why? Um, that's how I've had to really reconcile my faith with the Lord, is really just getting deep um, and asking the question, why? That's how I function and really uh, connect with God many times is, is, is through the logic. But, so back to the question, right? With silence. And really what this boils down to is the descriptive nature of the culture during this time and the way families functioned, being, being very patriarchal. Now, I, g- I gave a definition, just kind of like a modern definition of patriarchy, which I think is helpful, uh, from Merriam-Webster, and it says this. It says, a social organization marked by the supremacy of the father and the clan or family, the legal dependence of wives and children, and the reckoning of descent and inheritance in the male line. So there's an assumption of patriarchy within the culture of the Bible. In fact... During the Old Testament, the early pages of the Bible, and for the majority of the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of the Bible, right, virtually every culture in the entire world was patriarchal in structure. So this is the assumption. This is the assumption of how families functioned and the emphasis of why the Bible places an emphasis or what it seems like an emphasis, but really it's just descriptive of the way society functioned during this time. Very patriarchal. Um, There's a term, actually, uh, on the next slide, term called primogeniture, which helps us understand this firstborn inheritance privilege. Like, there's always this emphasis on the firstborn through the biblical narrative, right? And it's because of the inheritance privilege that the firstborns would have in this culture that, for many of us, we didn't grow up in patriarchal societies, so it's hard for us to connect and understand. But this is why the Bible is silent on women in genealogies many times. There's just a patriarchal preference because of being the descriptive nature of what was happening within society during this time. I will say this too. Just because something's being descriptive, once again, does not necessarily mean this was God's heart. The beginning of the biblical narrative, what do we have? We have the Garden of Eden. We have perfect communion that exists with God. We have pre-sin. We have pre-sin entering the world and causing a ruckus. So we have this state, man, that we see, and sin enters the world through this narrative of the Bible and humanity, of us understanding and seeing in our culture, things aren't as they are supposed to be. And we know God in the background 
through his perfection, is putting a plan into motion, right? This plan of Jesus to redeem us. And many times, and then we get to the end of the Bible and we understand, man, Jesus is the answer of what he's bringing us, redeeming us back to in this perfect communion that exists with God. The new heavens, the new earth, what we look forward to is very reflective of this reality that existed before sin entered the world, right? And this kind of, this amazing state of Eden, the Garden of Eden, and and the way things ought to be. So for many of us, we're like, that's what we have to understand is God is redeeming us back to what is prescriptive of what he wants to see happen in the midst of humanity within our brokenness, what he's restoring us back to through what he did with Jesus. And this also applies to some of the gender roles and the things that we see within the scriptures, right? We assume it's like, well, that's the way that things should be, I guess, that God wanted it. Not exactly. Once again, there is a descriptiveness of what is happening because of the brokenness of sin, because of the status, because of human hands trying to navigate society, right? navigate through this thing called life that is descriptive that the Bible describes, but that doesn't necessarily, once again, mean everything is prescriptive. So we have to understand the difference. And for many times, gender roles and the way that households and things function, it's not like we're, we're going back, we're trying to get ourselves back to this patriarchal culture. No, we look into the life of Jesus and we see, man, what is he redeeming us back to? You know, a lot of people Look, and they say, well, Genesis chapter 3, you know, sin enters the world, and, and you know, there's these things that basically, there's, there's that man, God commands it over women to, to basically have this specific role in the pains of childbirth and all these things. But what we need to understand is Genesis 3, it's describing the consequences of sin. A consequence doesn't necessarily mean this is God's ideal, right? But many people sometimes use that argument, but we need to understand a consequence being described because of sin that exists, because of things that fall short of the glory of God does not mean that that's God's ideal and what he's pushing us towards, right? I love it because Genesis 2, we see in the Bible, biblical narrative, second chapter of the Bible, Genesis 2, God's intended world. Things and how they existed before sin entered. Then we get to Genesis 3, and we see God's broken world. Generally during this time and for the culture for when it came to gender roles, husbands would rule the public sphere and wives normally ran the household. That was common. Women had their kind of domestic house roles and and, when, and men, man, they got to be the heroes in the public sphere and the people who were out front and doing what, what they got to do because they were men within this society and within this structure and culture. But then Jesus steps on the scene and what does he do? He pushes back on that. What do we see many times Jesus doing? He's pushing back on the religious people, the status quo people, the people that have advocated for a specific type of society that how has been manipulated into something that does not reflect the heart of God. And I love it. We have this story of Mary and Martha, and the scripture won't be up on the screen, but Mary and Martha, right? We have Martha in the kitchen, the domestic role, right? This is what women are supposed to be doing. And then we have Mary who literally decides to sit at the foot of her rabbi Jesus, which for men during this time, this was a role reserved for them. And what happens in the story? Jesus rebukes the domestic role, the woman in the kitchen, and affirms Mary and says, this is where you're supposed to be. He pushes back on the assumption. He gives us the prescription of what he's moving gender identity and culture to within society. And I'll say this. Once again, we can get deeper into this because a lot of people have questions about gender roles within church and so on and so forth. And I would encourage you to go to, to our YouTube channel. We did, a, we did a, a message series called the Mandela Effect. 
Just talking about, like, when people literally, like, stuff has become truth in the church that literally um, becomes truth and isn't really truth. So we really deal with this idea of women in ministry leadership, and we deal deep down to the culture in terms of how Jesus affirms women in leadership position roles. And I would encourage you, if you have questions about that, go deeper. Check this out. Check this message out. We deal with this. We deal with the, the, the issues and the conversation that comes with um, some, sometimes some of the pushback when it comes to the society we live in today and how genders relate to one another. So I would encourage you, check that out if you haven't already. So big answer to really what could be a really simple question, but the reason why there's a silence for most of the Bible in terms of genealogy because there's a cultural assumption in play. And we have to understand that. That's why this is so important. If you don't, then you just take everything as verbatim. You take everything what it is through your own lens and you create a Bible through a lens that you're applying irresponsibly to an ancient document that needs to be read within context. This is why this matters. This is why biblical interpretation and good, responsible biblical interpretation matters. Because you can go on so many different rabbit trails when you just make an assumption that your culture, the world that you currently live in, grew up in, were born into, is supreme, and you apply that to every biblical text. Next question. We doing good. Okay, cool. Uh, next question is this. Ooh, this is a good one. What is our responsibility in our own home for other people's lifestyle? This is a huge debate in our family. Hosting unmarried couples as house guests, gay family members, or even stickier, unmarried couples with children. It's a great question. Very sensitive question. One that I think needs to be navigate, navigated with a ton and ton of grace because um, we're dealing with human beings. And when I make the assumption that we're dealing with human beings, I'm, I'm making a biblical assumption that each and every one of us, whether Christian or not, were created in the image of God. We need to make it just a universal assumption before we start kind of diving into some of the weeds of, of some of these conversations and some of the questions that people are asking, right? We need to, we need to deal with the fact that whether somebody believes, placed their saving faith in Jesus or not, that there's dignity within each and human, uh, the thumbprint of God that exists on each and every human being born into this world, born into this earth, right? So uh, let's address this first and foremost. It's hard, I, it's hard to know the intentions of sometimes of questions like this, so I'm going to do my best, right? Um, because I, it seems like there might be a little bit of an, uh, an assumption here that, you know, kind of like what... I, I, am I going to be, uh, am I going to be responsible for somebody else? What's my responsibility kind of in the equation of, well, I have this family, I have other people in my life, and, uh, well, you know, the, the, the things that they choose to do aren't the things that I choose to do, and how does that affect me? So if that is the assumption, I just want to address that first and foremost. We know the Bible makes clear that you, you solely are responsible for your relationship with God. Nobody else. That's you. That's your personal responsibility. The Bible describes kind of this moment in the future where um, each and every one of us personally, individually, will face the Lord for what we've done, personally. So we have a personal responsibility that none of us can try to overpower or, or carry another person through this thing called the spiritual journey that everybody has to navigate individually, right? So that's the assumption for, for, from just kind of a biblical standpoint is you are responsible for your own life. You're responsible for your own connection, relationship with God. But how many of you guys know also 
we are called to be people that witness. And this is the conversation that we need to get into. And we talked about this a little bit in the, in the sermon series uh, in terms of kind of the uh, vertical morality, right? Is that many times, Christians, we get really insecure about this. How low can I go? We ask questions about how low can I go with God, my relationship with God, or how high can I go? You know, sometimes people are like, I just want to get with God. I want to have, I want to just reach the glory of God and get into, into this place, right? But it's interesting because we get insecure about this. But this is what Jesus, this is the whole point of Jesus is coming. The gospel takes care of this, right? And then we see Jesus beginning to affirm after he takes care of this and he sends and multiplies his church, he begins to prioritize and equate the relevance between this and this. Because if you don't love people, guess what? It means you don't love God. Because we had a lot of people, Pharisees, religious people, Jesus, people Jesus is confronting, were like, I'm all about this, I'm all about this. But when it came to this, didn't look like you loved God much. So Jesus confronted that head on. He said this, guess what? You're not doing this. If you don't do this, you're not doing this. Two sides of the same coin, right? So we have to understand this. We have to deal with the vertical morality and understand that there's no reason to be insecure about this because of Jesus. If you have a relationship with Jesus, the vertical morality, guess what? God wants to enter into relationship with you and allow you to be a witness empowered by him to make a difference in this world and bring as many people with you in this eternal equation as possible, right? So we have to deal with the personal responsibility. And, and, and here's what I'll say. There's a resource that I want to highly recommend, Deborah Hirsch. Um, there's a book called Redeeming Sex and deals with this conversation of sexual ethics within the church. This is a very, very helpful, relevant resource. If you have questions about uh, sexual orientation, sexual identity, I would highly encourage you um, to read this resource um, and utilize this resource because there's, there's some brilliant stuff in here um, that's really challenging, really convicting, and once again places a high priority of the heart of God and the sexual ethics uh, that, are, that are portrayed within the biblical scope, right? So this is another book that's going to be available in your resource center. I said a, one of the main jobs of this morning is to resource us. Um, so a lot of books that I'm going to uh, I'd recommend, obviously. So this is another one. Um, just because it's so relevant, and it's a conversation. Uh, it's not an issue, right? Because we're talking, once again, about people. And when people become issues, we've missed the entire point. So what I love about this book, though, is Deborah Hur, she, uh, she talks about this theology of embrace. She talks about this theological perspective. Because here's what I believe is that sometimes theology causes us to do some pretty crazy stuff. What is theology? It's the study of God. It's your interpretation of who God is, right? And, and this is, it gets dangerous when we as Christians, knowledge, information about who God is enters into our mind, and then it doesn't transition to our heart, and then it doesn't transition to our feet, where we actually do something about it. Good theology takes that into consideration. It makes the full transition. It's not something that's like, well, God, I know you, but I'm not going to do anything for you. No, it makes a transition where you're saying, I have a heart for God's people. I have a heart for God's mission. I have a heart for the way that God sees the world and how much he loves the world that we live in. John 3, 16, right? The heart of God, a world that he loves so much. But then we could just stay there and we could, right, warm and fuzzy. And it never makes the transition to our feet where we actually do something about it. And what Deb Hirsch really addresses in this book is, is this, the full theological transition, of, of how, how do we approach people? And she talks about a theology of embrace. We go to the next slide. And just from a biblical standpoint, here's, here, here's the big thing is 
in a Christian culture, for whatever reason, there's a massive fear of what I would call condoning other people's behavior. Well, you know, if I if I do this, it might be it might seem like I'm condoning that person. I'm 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 like, you know, I'm affirming kind of their what they're doing, right? I'm I'm participating in it with them. But here's what I'll say is we've swung so far to an extreme where fear wins that literally the love of God being prioritized uh, has kind of taken a back seat. The love of God that Jesus prioritized, the top commandment, the one that Jesus prioritized and also solidified into one commandment to love one another like I have loved you and what he displayed and showed what that would look like by living sacrificially. Romans 5, chapter 8, the fear of condoning can't win in this equation. Let's look at Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Meaning this, the biggest condoner at all with that logic would be Jesus. We, am I on now? Yeah! I'm just going to believe that whatever what didn't go online wasn't supposed to go online. You know what I'm saying? The sovereignty of God. Uh, so, for us to understand that the problem, once again, lies within the posture of the question. Because there's questions that are designed to put us in a place and to corner us into a trap where we lose no matter how we answer the question. But here's what I would recommend. When people try to trap us in questions like that, we ask better questions. Like, I don't know, what do you see? What do you believe? What do you, how do you? What's the heart of God addressing that issue? I love what Jesus does. When the, when the religious people tried to question and trap him, he didn't answer the question. He would answer a better question back that dealt with the heart of the issue. Amen? Okay, we're done with that. All right, next one, Christian praxis. We don't have the slides yet, but we're working on it. Can we give it up and tie for Ty and Austin, who are doing a great job making sure that we're taken care of this morning? I love technical difficulties. Come on, we just embrace it. We embrace the mess. Okay, here's the next question. Follow along with me this morning. Um, great question. How do you know when the Lord is guiding you toward a change in career or any big life change? And this is a great question. This is really, it gets really practical. It's like, how do we know when God's kind of like entering us maybe into a new season? And I will say this, that um, it's contextual to each, each person. Um, since I truly believe this, God desires personal relationship with you. Your path for life isn't going to look like everybody else's. And the way that you interpret and relate with God might look a little bit different. It's not like a, a perfect math equation that works verbatim uh, in, the, in the midst of life, right? But I will say this. In terms of this idea of a relationship with Jesus, the first question in terms of understanding direction for your life, maybe a new season or life change, is are you intentionally seeking him? Are you intentionally having a relationship with God? Or maybe are you a person that's been reading your Bible consistently? Are you a person that's praying? Are you a person that the biblical model of fasting are you fasting? Are you giving up something in your life to make room for more of God in a season where maybe it feels like something's changing or the seasons are changing? So this gets really, really, really practical. But I would say, first and foremost, we have to prioritize relationship. Are we in relationship with God and in a place for us to actually respond to this idea that maybe God is speaking to us and through us, right? Are unexpected life doors opening or closing? Is there kind of a shift maybe for you in this season of your life. And I will say this, that if the heavens are parting and you literally have heard the audible voice of God to go, do it, right? 
But for many of us, we haven't had that special revelation of God. Specifically, we haven't had that burning bush moment. So many times, how do we navigate this? How do we kind of engage with this? And I heard, I heard a, a pastor that I highly respect um, kind of describe it this way. And I love it because I think it gets really, really practical. Um, we still don't have stuff on, stuff on the screens. Dang it. But um, there's three key areas, I think, that are going to kind of good checks. If we feel like maybe like God's stirring us or leading us into a new direction, I think there's kind of like three main capacities, and I think about this practically for myself, too, in how I kind of respond to maybe like a cross or a, um, kind of a, a fork in the road kind of a season or situation. Uh, first is our mind, our logic. Um, sometimes there's seasons or situations where things come up and we comprehend them, and we understand that God renews our mind, right? That's a part of the renewal of God, where it's like, man, like, Am I, does this logically make sense? And how many of you guys, sometimes in faith, things don't logically make sense, which is why this is only one category. The other category, I would say, is our heart, our desires. You know, I love when the Bible says that he gives us our heart's desires, but sometimes our desires aren't matched up with him. So sometimes your good idea or thing that makes your heart warm and fuzzy isn't always necessarily God's. But I think that's something to take into consideration as well. Our mind, our heart, man, is our desires aligned with maybe the way that God's speaking or kind of pushing us forward in this. And then the last thing I would say would be called kind of our spiritual intuition, right? Our gut, the, our Holy, this Holy Spirit. I, we talk about this in growth track is that each and every of us have a huncher. And uh, I love it because God kind of redeems that huncher in our lives and gives us that Holy Spirit intuition. And I think what's really, really helpful is taking those three things, your mind, your heart, and then, and, and then your spiritual intuition, and is really figuring out maybe two out of three of those things are aligning. Because many times when there's a fork in the road or many times when it just feels like you're looking for like a shift in the seasons, um, you don't get all three. Because sometimes there's something that God calls to you where it logically just doesn't even make sense whatsoever, Right? It just doesn't make any sense, but you know God within you is saying, go, go, go. And it's something that's under God's will that's a desire, right? This could happen in all those different scenarios as well, where it's like, well, I don't necessarily have a heart for this, but I feel like God's moving me. I feel like God might be speaking to me. And for me in this season, there's, there, it logically, there, it logically this makes sense, but I, my heart's not necessarily in it, right? I don't know what that looks like. Many times I think about that for the transition for Callie and I to take the lead pastor of this church, right? For us, we didn't know what, we didn't have a heart for Ponca City because we literally didn't even like know it existed necessarily. But we got this call, and logically for us, it was like, man, we know God's pushing us. We know logically, man, we're not going to be youth pastors forever. And then within us, we prayed for 21 days and fasted on the 21st day. We got a phone call. We came here, and we felt like that's what God was doing. But it wasn't like we're like, man, like I have dreams about the people and all this stuff. No, we never had that. We didn't, but we knew. We were like, man, we're going to filter this through the way that God's speaking. So I think that's a really, really, really helpful tool. Those three areas and filtering those, those three things, and you're not going to get all three. But sometimes, man, if you get two out of those three things, that's a helpful idea of how, man, maybe God's speaking to you. And here's, here's the other thing, too. Sometimes you're going to be a person that you're like, I feel like that's what God's speaking or doing, and you might be wrong. We, we have a growth track called prophetic prayer or practicing prayer because here's what I believe. You got to get good at it. You got to practice sometimes if you prophetically speak over somebody. If God gives you something or you believe God's given you something, um, it needs to be filtered. It needs to be chewed up and spit out the bones. Like the Bible encourages us to take what is good, leave behind, right, what is bad. So for many of us, we just need to practice. And sometimes you might be saying, thus says the Lord, I'm supposed to marry you. But once again, you could be wrong because God needs to speak that to the other person. Hello, single Bible college dude who uses that as an excuse to try to marry the girl he wants to. 
So once again, there needs to be more that God is redeeming so many different capacities of our lives that I think that's a really helpful tool that we see there's biblical precedence for of how to navigate maybe life change or even be open to um, this idea that things can kind of progress. Okay, um, we're going to go to some spontaneous questions. And Callie, anything that, okay? Sure. Okay. I'm going to sit down, though, because I don't want to awkwardly just stand beside TD when he answers these. Okay, the first one we got was, was polygamy okay in biblical times? It seems it was never addressed as wrong to take other wives or concubines. Yes, that's a great question. Once again, I think that this is a conversation that we would have to deep dive deeper into um, because of the cultural sensor sensitivity and the complexity. So um, from kind of at this point in time, uh, the understanding of what I've uh, kind of applied and done research for and kind of looked into, because that, once again, that is a great question, is once again, we have a descriptive culture. Here's what I love about God is he meets us in the midst of the mess. Here's what I also understand about women's rights and women's rights within society during this time is um, if you were a woman who was not married and you were a single woman in society during this time, you were literally probably going to be screwed when it com came to your social standing because you needed a covering. So many w times with polygamy and, and concubines and this whole kind of structure that we see in the Old Testament was this, this representation where people literally were a part of a family, had the covering and the safety. But once again, we cannot assume that is God's destination. God meets people in the midst of the mess. The polygamy was messy. What do we see the most wise person in the Bible fall in his wisdom because of? Because of the issue of women, right? So once again, the biblical principle stays consistent throughout it, but God is willing to use people that are imperfect and use them in the lineage of the biblical story and meet people in the midst of it, but that does not mean that that is the destination of God's heart. When we want to see the destination of where God's bringing us and redeeming us to, we need to look to Jesus. Because if, if it's not, then why? what's the whole point of sending Jesus in the first place? Does that make sense? So it's really, really, really kind of... A, once again, surface-level answer to a, to a big, complex question. But once again, great. Another example of kind of descriptive versus prescriptive, right? Because polygamy, once again, is never explicitly affirmed by God and is not God's heart because when we look at God's heart in terms of sexual ethics, in terms of what he's redeeming us back to, we got to also look at back to the Garden of Eden as well and how human beings related to one another sexually. And what do we see there between Adam and Eve? We see a, a bar being set of what God is redeeming us back to. But how many of you guys know that sin runs rampant in culture and, and, and causes messes, but God is gracious to use us in the midst of the mess, and we see that illustration through so much sinfulness existing with culture, but God using and pushing along his agenda uh, in the biblical narrative and the biblical history. So, yes. Maybe one more. We got, yeah, one more, and then we can wrap up. Okay. How important is denominations? Is it possible to be a part of a church when you don't agree with every tiny, de every tiny detail in the doctrine of the denomination? Great question. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I think we got to keep the main things the plain things. I think sometimes there's certain expressions that exist within denominational boundaries and guidelines. Um, but I think the big thing is, is, is primary is the mission of God. Discipleship. More than anything else, Jesus advocated, was an activist uh, for one primary thing. It was discipleship. That was the mission. Go and make disciples. He said, come, follow me, and I will make you what? Fishers of men. So he engaged in this discipleship, multiplicative journey with his disciples. Then he really activated that and encouraged that through what we call today um, the church. So I would say that is obviously primary, and there's going to be different denominational expressions within that. 
Here's what I will say. A lot of people poo-poo on uh, denominations in our day and age. But I'll say this, is there's a trendy word called networks that basically is a denomination that crept up when a lot of non-denominational churches started popping up. And you know what? Both do the same thing. Networks and denominations provide governance and accountability. Here's what I'll say. You don't want to attend the rogue church, the one that's out on its own with no accountability whatsoever because that means that no one's being held accountable. Our denominational structure has structure that holds us as pastors accountable. But the beauty within our, our denomination, the Foursquare denomination, they also give a lot of the pastors a lot of freedom contextually to minister in their cities, not assuming Ponca City is like Burbank, California, where Callie and I used to live and we're youth pastoring and allowing the gospel to, to go forth, right? So I will say this is um, you've got to make the main things the plain things, and that fleshes out in different ways. And I believe you can be a part of a movement, and I think it's healthy to not agree with everything. I'll say this. We live in the Bible Belt where literally the pastor is almost like just short of a deity in the way that pastors are looked at. But my job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And we are the priesthood of all believers, so my job isn't to be like high and mighty. My job is to literally equip others to believe that they could be shepherds in their vocation, to be shepherds in their workplaces, to be missionaries, not just overseas, but be missionaries on the other bunch of hours that exist in the week outside of just a Sunday morning experience, right? So, um... Once again, I kind of went on a few rabbit trails there, but once again, governance is not a bad thing because it includes accountability. And most people who are like, well, yeah, non-denominational, you're part of a network. So you're part of a denomination with a more trendier name because there needs to be governance and accountability. And when you get into the the nitty-gritty of all the nuances of some of the doctrinal stuff, yeah, there might be disagreements. But um, as long as we're keeping the main things, the plain things, I think that is supreme. Jesus' law, his law of love, and the mission he has empowered us to be a part of. Now, there's other symbolism that actually takes place, baptism, communion. These are things that Jesus commanded us to do, but we have to make sure that the main things are the priority. And when you start disagreeing on the mission, that's where we ha- you're going to have an issue, is your mission isn't the same priority as the mission that Jesus has empowered his church to participate in. And every denomination kind of fleshes out the rest of those kind of nuances differently. Does that make sense? Hopefully that's, once again, on the fly. It's kind of a reduction answer, but what's good about this is um, I have these questions, so these are going to be uh, really help engage in kind of future conversations.